Well, sometimes we need a picture to help us understand deep truth. That's why Jesus spoke in parables. One of the reasons. When he wanted to teach his disciples about how precious salvation was, he could have just said, salvation is precious. That would have been true. Instead, he chose to teach us about it through parables. One of which he said, hey, listen, the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it for the delight and joy that he had in finding it, he went away. He sold all that he had so that he could buy the field so he could buy and have the treasure. Now that communicates value, doesn't it? Sometimes we need pictures to help us understand deep truths. Well, today God wants to do something similar with marriage. Marriage is more than you think. You might think marriage is about love and commitment. Two people joining their lives together. And you'd be partly right, but only partly. Because marriage is actually most fundamentally picture given us by God to teach us deep truth. And so here's what I want to persuade you of this morning. Marriage is about the gospel. And so we've got to embrace God's design and desire in this most holy matter. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2? If you're new with us, We're in a series in the Old Testament on two minor prophets, Haggai and Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. You can find it if you open up to Matthew, which is the first book in the New. If you open up to Matthew and you just turn to the left one book, you're going to find it. And if you're using those blue Bibles in front of you, it's on page 801. Now, just a bit of context as you're turning there. Last week we saw that the Lord is displeased with his people because their worship is lackluster. Instead of giving him their best, they're giving him the leftovers of their lives. Well, today we see another reason why he's displeased with his people. And it's because their marriages are in disarray. Pick up in 10 and we'll read through 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one, the portion of their spirit? 
with a portion of the Spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. The essence of the issue here has to do with their marriages. In 10 through 12, God's people are marrying those who serve other gods. And then in 13 through 16, God's people are unjustly divorcing their wives. And the fact that this is a huge deal is underscored by the number of times the word faithless is used. Why are we faithless to one another? Verse 10. Judah has been faithless. Verse 11. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Verse 14. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. 15. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Verse 16. Five times. This is faithlessness. And it's not just faithlessness horizontally between husbands and wives. It's faithlessness vertically between God's people and God himself. God is displeased with covenant faithlessness. Why? Well, let's take a look at the text more closely. Pick back up in verse 10. Malachi begins by asking two questions. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now, those are rhetorical questions, which means they actually don't need an answer. Yes, the Lord both made us, he's our creator, and made us his own. We're his children. He brought us out of Egypt. He brought us to himself at Sinai, and he entered into his covenant. And we, he entered into us in covenant at Sinai. Two implications flow from this. Number one, God's children shouldn't sin against one another because they belong to the same family. They must treat one another as the Father dictates and desires. That's one implication that flows from God's fatherhood of His people. Number two, when God's children do sin against one another, they're sinning against God Himself. Just think about it. If a father lays down a rule for how you're supposed to treat your sister If you break that rule, you've sinned not only against your sister, but against your father who gave the rule. So what have they been doing? Verse 11 says, Judah has been faithless and abomination, such a strong word, has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. The abomination that's taken place is that God's people are marrying daughters of a foreign god. All of the nations around Israel serve a host of so-called gods. I say so-called because in truth there is only one god, the Lord God of heaven and earth, 
the one God who exists eternally as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, there are many so-called gods of the nations around them. Baal, Molech, Chemosh, Temuz, Asherah. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see these names and you'll see their abominable practices like prostitution as a part of worship in order to give the onlooking God a show, like child sacrifice in order to earn that God's favor. How did the father want his children to relate to these nations? (laughs) He wanted them to be separate. By the way, all those food laws that you read in Leviticus that seem so strange, one of the main reasons for those was to put space between God's people and all those nations around her. If you don't share a meal, that keeps them distance. Well, why does God want that space? Because He knew that His children could be led easily astray with them. By the way, same reasons parents are careful concerning who they let their children spend time with. Because children are what? Easily influenced. Well, if he didn't want them sharing meals with the nations around them, how do you think he felt about intermarriage? Deuteronomy 7.3 You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your children from following me to serve other gods. Marrying those who serve other gods is forbidden because God knows it will lead his people astray. And notice especially God's concern for the children. To have a divided house is confusing. Mommy serves the Lord. Daddy serves Asherah. Or or Daddy serves the Lord. Mommy serves Baal. Who am I going to serve? Just note, brothers and sisters, God wants children to be raised by a mother and a father who are devoted to worshiping Him and devoted to raising their children to worship Him. True then, true now. And just one more note. The issue here is actually not marriage to a foreigner so much. It's marriage to a foreigner who serves a foreign god. Ruth, the Moabite, married Boaz, the Israelite, and God was pleased because she trusted in the one true God of heaven and earth. This is actually important to note here because some in the past have wrongly used texts like this to suggest that racial intermarriage is wrong. Just be clear, such an idea is preposterous. If a white person and an African-American love Jesus, get married, God is pleased, and you're going to make beautiful babies. Okay? But back to the point. What they're doing is an absolute scandal. 
completely disregarding God's covenantal instruction. That's why the warning in verse 12 is so strong. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts, exclamation point. Cut off either means to excommunicate or execute. That's how serious this is. The introduction into the covenant community of such a mixed spiritual identity is so dangerous, it cannot be tolerated. By the way, that that phrase, any descendant, it's a tough Hebrew phrase to translate. If you're in the ESV, you'll see a footnote at the bottom of the page that says, any who wakes and answers. I believe the idea is essentially this. Anyone who does this is the one who's going to be cut off, not necessarily his descendants. In fact, let me just read for you the NIV translation of this verse. And the NASB is similar. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Now notice that last part. Those doing this, they're still bringing offerings to the Lord. They're still coming to the temple to worship. They're still coming to church on Sunday. Do you know what this is? This is trying to do the impossible. They're trying to disregard part of God's law that they don't want to follow and still follow the Lord. They want to pick and choose what they obey, like you pick and choose what you eat at a buffet. I'll obey the Lord in this area of my life, but this area, no. But I'm still going to go to church, and I'm still worshiping God. No, you're not. God will not receive worship from a divided heart. Which leads us to the second part of the text. So 10 through 12, faithlessness to God in mixed marriages. 13 through 16, faithlessness to God in unjustified divorces. 13, though, is is a hinge verse. It connects to both and it reveals God's refusal to accept their worship. Look at 13. 13. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hands. So God is not pleased with their worship. And honestly, they're tore up about it. And this is genuine. These are not fake tears. These are real tears. They are tore up that God is not hearing them, that God is not accepting them, that God's presence has left the building. They know it, and it's breaking their hearts. I can hear them telling their friends, I just wish my relationship with God was what it used to be. I just feel so far from Him. But note this. There is sorrow that pleases God and there is sorrow that does not. 
The sorrow that pleases God is one that is willing to part ways with sin. To put it away. No matter how painful, costly. No matter how damaging to your reputation. No matter matter how much you love it and no matter how much you make excuses for it. Sorrow that pleases God is sorrow that turns from sin. The Apostle Paul called this godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7.10. But that's not the type of sorrow they have here. Paul identifies another sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7.10, worldly sorrow. And that's a sorrow that's tore up, real tore up about the consequences and the fallout from sin and wants to hold things together but is unwilling to do what is right, is unwilling to turn, is unwilling to stop justifying and hiding, unwilling to leave. Leave the sin. And that's the type of sorrow in this text that these people have. They're crying, covering the Lord's altar with tears, all the while divorcing their wives unjustly. Verse 14, but you say, why does he not? In other words, why does he not accept our worship? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Several things subtly drive home how important marriage is to God here. First of all, He is witness to marriage. When a man and a woman enter into marriage, the Lord is witness to it. He is there. He is present. He sees. Second, he describes this marriage relationship in three significant ways. Your wife is the wife of your youth. Not your wife in your youth. The wife of your youth. The Lord intends faithfulness to this woman from the beginning when you're young until the end when you are old. Your wife is your companion, the text says. Marriage is about companionship. The Lord intends you to be faithful to your companion and then your wife is wife by covenant. This is no informal, insignificant arrangement that can be breached for whatever reason. The Lord intends this covenant to be kept for good. And then 15 draws back the curtain on marriage even further. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. This takes us all the way back to the beginning. And when I say the beginning, I mean the very beginning. When God made man and woman and he gave them to one another in marriage. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. First book in the Bible, Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read starting in verse 18. 
Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. If you go to the table of contents, you've gone too far. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Companionship. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to, see, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That verse, verse 24, is what Malachi 2 references. Did he not make them one? Here then is what we learn about marriage just from this text. It's a one flesh union, a physical union. It's a one flesh union between a man and a woman. It's a one flesh union between a man and a woman for life. It's a one flesh union for companionship. And it's a one flesh union for children. Chapter 1, verse 26, God commands Adam and Eve to, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And in our text this morning, verse 15 says, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Marriage is not for just for companionship. It is for fruit-bearing, child-bearing. The Lord wants His image-bearers to bear more image-bearers and for them to be raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And as they do so, God's glory spreads. And this is His design. We see it in Genesis. We see it in Malachi. And we see it in Matthew. Listen to the words of Jesus. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Friends, I point these texts out to you to show you that God's design for marriage has always been the same. From the beginning, applicable and authoritative for every culture in every age, this is the design. You can understand then why God wants His children 
to be so serious about this. The last verses in our text in Malachi says this. You don't have to turn there, but, but here's how the text ends. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Can you see just how unacceptable their actions are? This is no light matter because they are disregarding God's creational design. But I want to go deeper. At the beginning of the sermon, I said that that marriage is about more than just two people coming together. It's a picture to teach us deep truth. What is that truth? Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. You'll find Ephesians in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Ephesians chapter 5. Pick up in verse 25. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's Genesis 2.24 again. And look at what Paul says next. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In the Bible, a mystery doesn't mean what you think it means. You probably think a mystery means something unknowable. It's a mystery. In the Bible, a mystery is something that is hidden for a time and revealed later. And the mystery revealed here is the significance of marriage. Why marriage? Why is marriage the way it is? Why did God create it? Why a man and a woman? Why companionship? Why fruitfulness? Why faithfulness? Because all of it points to Jesus Christ's relationship to His church. Marriage is God's primary analogy to teach us about the gospel. Think about each piece, and if you're sleeping, wake up. Why a man and a woman? Because we learn about Jesus through a man's treatment of his wife. And we learn about ourselves as Christians through a wife's treatment of her husband. Husbands are to love their wives because Christ has loved us. How has he loved us? 
from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Husband's sacrificial and self-giving love teaches us about Jesus' love, most significantly shown in the cross. And wives, following your husband's leadership and submitting to their God-given authority, this teaches us about how we, all of us as Christians, are to submit ourselves to Jesus Christ. Why companionship? Because there is a true union between Christ and His church. When you come to know Him through faith, you are joined to Him. You have a real relationship with Him. You love Him. You like Him. And you want to be with Him. Today and tomorrow and every day until the great day when your union will be consummated in its fullness where we will fully know and be known by Him. Why fruitfulness? Because your union with Jesus is one that's always supposed to create spiritual offspring. Your love for Him overflows in a desire to multiply, to live on mission for Him, to woo and to win lost souls for Christ, thereby increasing the size of the family of God. Each sinner who trusts in Christ is an incremental fulfillment of filling the earth with those who praise the name of Jesus. That's why fruitfulness and why faithfulness. Because can you ever imagine Jesus leaving or forsaking his church? No. But of course, we might forsake Him. Just like we're tempted towards other lovers outside of marriage, so too we're tempted towards other lovers spiritually. And so the call to guard yourselves spiritually is so important lest you leave Christ. And so do you see how important marriage is? It's not just about a man and a woman. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. God created it, and He gave it in order to teach you deep truth. And that deep truth is summed up by John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you may wonder, why do Christians care so much about this marriage thing? You may wonder why we can't support gay marriage. You may wonder why we can't get on board with a love is love definition of marriage. It's because it gets at the very heart of our faith. This is no secondary issue. It's primary. And so, brothers and sisters, what would God have you to do this morning? Well, let's go there. I want to speak to various different folks 
in the room in various different places of life. First, a word to every Christian in the room. God's desire for every single Christian is to hold marriage in honor. The writer of Hebrews says, let marriage be held in honor among all. This means we need to submit to God's design. Brothers and sisters, we cannot compromise on this. We cannot accept gay marriage. We cannot accept transgenderism. Both are distortions of God's creational commandment confirmed by Jesus, and both do violence to the meaning of marriage. But more than that, we need to celebrate God's design. Brothers and sisters, please do not cower in a corner about this. Do not be embarrassed about this. Do not be embarrassed that there are only two genders, men and women. And do not be embarrassed that God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman. Why should you not be embarrassed? Because this is God's plan for human flourishing. This is God's plan for mental health. This is God's plan for wellness. This is where the good life is at. I mourn that so many believe the lies that happiness can be found outside submitting to God's design that only leads to pain and darkness and depression and ultimately spiritual death. Listen, joy is not found in breaking out out of all boundaries that God has given. Joy is found in submitting to God's boundaries because God is a good God and a good Father who has made us and designed us for Himself. And let me just speak to you this morning if you struggle with homosexual desire. Or if you struggle with gender identity issues, my plea to you is to believe that God as creator knows best and to submit to his design. And by the way, he has a plan for the wayward and those who've shaken their fists and said no to him. No one is beyond reach of the mercy and grace of God. Jesus Christ came to pay the price for sin, for every kind of sin. You can be forgiven no matter who you are or what you've done. You can be forgiven through turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to pay the price for your sin. If you'd like to talk about what that looks like, Boy, I would count it a privilege. Please don't hesitate to ask. Okay, so next. A word to singles in the room. First of all, marry only in the Lord. What do I mean by that? I mean only marry a Christian. If you are a Christian, only marry a Christian. Period. End stop. God's command to Israel not to marry foreigners applies to us in not marrying outside the family of faith. Second, marry for children. Marriage is not just for companionship. It's for children. And pets are not children. 
Children are children. And God wants children. I say that as a ridiculous pet lover. I'm pathetic. I've become a dog person. Really? A really dog? Yeah, we won't go there. All right. So, but pets are not kids. Now, of course, some can't have children due to infertility or age, and that's God's prerogative, and that's okay. But what's not okay is to come into marriage during childbearing years without a willingness to have children. And you also might have to reject some some wrong thinking about children, like maybe I shouldn't have children because it might contribute to overpopulation. That's not right thinking. Neither is thinking, I don't want to bring children into this world the way it's going. That's not right thinking. God wants children, people, and children are for your good. You want to grow in patience, in sacrificial love, in servant-heartedness, in perseverance. Kids will do it for you. And they'll also give you some of the greatest joys you can ever have. So have babies. Third, if you're single and you don't want to be single, pray. Pray. Ask the Lord for a spouse if that's what's best for you and for God's glory. Marriage is not for everyone, but it is for most. Ask the Lord for patience as you wait. And ask your brothers and sisters to pray for you. Ask your elders for counsel when you consider entering into a relationship. Let others help you bear this burden and guide you through the counsel of wise counselors. Now, to the married. Treasure your marriage. Has this gift become something you take for granted? Have you forgotten the unbelievable blessing you have to wake up next to somebody who's given their life to you? Who's laughed with you, cried with you, and put up with you, and comforted you, and forgiven you? Has it become ho-hum, the fact that you can walk into the door and have a hug? I'm sure all sorts of things are jacked in your marriage right now. Nevertheless, treasure it, brothers and sisters. Treasure your marriage. And guard your marriage. Two times in our text today, the Lord calls us to guard our marriage. Why? Because we need to. We are vulnerable to all sorts of threats in marriage. We're vulnerable to attention from someone else. And that attention can quickly lead to emotional connection. And that emotional connection can quickly lead to an affair. And if you don't happen to you, think again. Guard your marriage. And guard it. Guard it from this most heinous thing. Yes, Guard it from this most heinous thing by guarding it in smaller things. Guard it from anger. Guard it from harsh words. Guard it from laziness. 
Guard it from resentment. Guard it from taking one another for granted. Guard it from becoming roommates. Guard it from boredom. And we do this together. We guard our marriages as we live lives together in the church. As we see examples of healthy marriages, as we ask more couples, more mature couples for advice and help, as we reject this prideful tendency to think, I can figure out our problems on our own. Reject that and invite others to speak into your life. And brothers and sisters, we have an obligation to one another here. As a member of Redeeming Grace Church, do you see a marriage that you think is struggling? Do something totally crazy and ask them how they're doing. And ask them if they'd like to talk about it. Another thing. Beware the consequences of a poor marriage. Beware the consequences of a poor marriage. The state of your marriage impacts your relationship with the Lord. If your marriage is out of whack, your relationship with the Lord is going to be negatively affected. Ask yourself, do you feel far from God this morning? You will if your marriage isn't right. 1 Peter 3, 7 outright tells us that if this relationship is disordered, your very prayers will be hindered. Last word to the married folk. Fight for your marriage. Fight for it. Engage. It's worth your effort. It's worth the work. It's worth opening up and receiving pastoral counsel. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and the gospel of God, which is powerful enough to save. Do you think it can't transform a marriage? Fight. Fight for it. And that might begin by just humbling yourself and admitting that it's not good right now. Now let me just do a little FAQ here. Some of you may be wondering about several things. So let me try to address a couple of big questions that may be on your mind. What if you're a Christian and you're married to a non-Christian? What should you do in this situation? Well, according to Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians seven twelve, you should remain with that spouse and not divorce them. You should remain married, love them, Show them how much you love Jesus Christ by living an upright Christian life in their presence, prioritizing Christ's church, and pray that God would be merciful and save your unsaved spouse. That's what you should do. Is divorce ever allowed? Based on Matthew nineteen nine. In 1 Corinthians 7.15, I believe the Bible teaches that divorce is permitted, not commanded, but permitted in two instances. Adultery and abandonment. 
In those two instances, divorce is allowed and the innocent party is free to remarry without that being sin. Now, what if you're remarried yet your divorce was not allowed biblically? Or what if you're remarried but you were the guilty party in a divorce? Well, brothers and sisters, if that's the case, then you need to recognize that what you did was wrong. It was sin. But it's not unforgivable sin. What should you do? You should own the fact that what you did was wrong, that it was contrary to the will of God. You should confess that as sin to the Lord, and then you should be faithful to your new spouse. Although you shouldn't have broken the first marital bond, you did. You need to own that. Receive forgiveness from Christ for that. And then be faithful to your new spouse. Look, God is in the business of saving sinners. If only those who have done everything right regarding marriage are saved, a lot of people are in a lot of trouble. And that's not how I understand the gospel. Marriage points us to the gospel. His mercy and grace to His church through Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That's what marriage is about. So let's continue, all of us, to embrace that design, to celebrate that design, to live out that design, and to praise Him for His grace if we haven't. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word through which you declare to us your person and your character and your laws and your grace. Father, we confess we are not able to understand your love and your faithfulness and your companionship and so you've given us a picture. You've given us a picture in marriage. May we first thank you for it. And then may we seek to submit and celebrate your design. In Jesus' name, amen.